Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Pawtucket, Rhode Island is like a lot of other manufacturing hubs in New England. Small cities trying to dig out of an economic hole. You know, we're struggling with the pending closure of Memorial Hospital. You know, Pawtucket needs an injection of economic development. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll bring you the story of a solution some people in the city have in mind, a new ballpark for the beloved Red Sox farm team. Plus, you know those famous New Hampshire liquor stores that sit right on the state's borders? Customers from New York and Massachusetts, they are coming to New Hampshire, they are buying just huge quantities of booze, and they're paying for that booze in all cash. And they're doing so in a way that that kind of violates federal law. We'll bring you that investigation, and we'll hear about a program that's lighting a fire with some new outdoors enthusiasts. Oh my gosh, it's working! This is so empowering. <laughs> it's Next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. In the absence of an income or a sales tax, New Hampshire uses the lure of cheap liquor to help balance the books. The state owns and operates about 80 retail liquor stores. They're low-cost, high-volume outlets, with many strategically located on the state's southern border. Out-of-towners are pleasantly surprised to find liquor stores at some of New Hampshire's highway rest stops. But while the state caters to out-of-state customers, one elected official from New Hampshire is worried that this is all going too far, potentially exposing the state to lawsuits. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman has been following this story as part of a reporting team. He joins me now from NHPR Studios in Concord. Todd, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me, John. So why don't we start by just explaining uh, this story that involves not only New Hampshire, but uh, surrounding states, Vermont, Massachusetts, and New York as well. Outline for us what's happening here. Sure. So this story broke a few weeks ago uh, when a New Hampshire executive counselor, that is an elected position in the state, uh, sort of serves as an overseer of the executive branch. Uh, Anyways, this executive counselor, he's a Democrat named Andrew Valinsky. He gets tipped off by an employee at one of the state-run liquor stores, the store in Keene, New Hampshire. And what he claims is that customers from New York and Massachusetts, they are coming to New Hampshire, they are buying just huge quantities of booze, and they're paying for that booze in all cash, and they're doing so in a way that that kind of violates federal law. So, So what, it's illegal to buy a whole lot of booze with cash? It depends how you structure it. So since 9-11, the IRS has had a new reporting requirement for large cash transactions. So anytime anyone spends more than $10,000 in cash, the business is supposed to fill out this technical form called IRS Form 8300. And so acting on a tip from this whistleblower, Andrew Valinsky was inside of the Keene Liquor Store, and he says he watched as two customers who had arrived together in a car with New York plates placed an order for and purchased $24,000 worth of booze. But these customers, they split the transaction up at the register so that each sale was worth less than $10,000. They paid in cash, but by splitting up the purchase this way, 
they didn't have to fill out the IRS form. And this is illegal. And the same would go for any customer who, say, you know, buys $9,900 worth of liquor at one store, then drives a couple towns over to the next liquor store and buys $9,900 more. And, you know, these structuring of the transactions, this is what is at the heart of the allegations that are being made by Valinsky. You know, he's alleging here that the state-run liquor stores are not doing enough to stop these illegal purchases. And according to a memo released by Valinsky, you know, the New Hampshire Liquor Commission, he contends, may be turning a blind eye to these transactions, transactions that, uh, you know, it should be worth stating would be considered money laundering in a sense. So, so we've got some tape here from Valinsky. Uh, aside from being an elected official in the state, he's also a well-known trial lawyer there. This is a big enterprise, and the liquor sales fund a lot of important state programs. And so if I'm being told that part of those liquor sales may not be legal, may subject us to suit by a neighboring state, uh, may put our employees in some danger, it becomes my responsibility to raise the issue. When he talks about uh, liquor sales funding a lot of programs, Todd, what does he mean? Well, the State Liquor Commission is kind of a cash cow. It's one of the rare government agencies that gets uh, high marks from most people. Last year, it generated $153 million in revenue for the state. That's roughly you know, 6% of the entire state budget. And the details of the liquor that seems to be a favorite amongst these bootleggers who are buying in New Hampshire, this is, I guess, a fascinating part of the story to me. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so it's Hennessy. Hennessy appears to be the drink of choice uh, for these bootleggers. Valinsky watched a $24,000 transaction uh, of Hennessy. A few months ago, Vermont officials pulled over vehicles, two separate stops. Both of those cars were headed to New York. Both of those cars had tens of thousands of dollars worth of Hennessy in them. And if you look at the online inventories, so these get posted each day on the Liquor Commission's website, each of the New Hampshire liquor stores' uh, inventories at the, at the close of day, there are just huge quantities of Hennessy uh, available at the stores, especially the ones near the borders. Uh, so I just printed out yesterday's inventory. I'm holding it up right now. Uh, the store in Bedford has 2,000 uh, flasks of Hennessy in stock. In Keene, there's 2,976 bottles in stock. Clearly, the Liquor Commission is aware that it's moving a lot of Hennessy and it's doing its part to make sure there's enough on stock for uh, folks who want to come buy it, who want to buy a lot of it. So what's the reaction been from these liquor stores to, to these charges he's making? Well, the New Hampshire Liquor Commission flatly denies that it is in any way turning a blind eye to anything illegal. Uh, the commission has in place a step-by-step guide for employees to follow whenever they process a large all-cash transaction. And they state very clearly that as long as their policies are followed, there should be no violation of state or federal law. They did go a little bit further here to criticize Andrew Valinsky for what they call his sting operation. Uh, clearly, there's a, an attempt here to try to embarrass Valinsky for, for his actions. And some of this has to do with just pure politics. He's a Democrat, and people in the New Hampshire GOP are, are also jumping on this story. Yeah, there was immediate pushback on this from top Republicans here in New Hampshire. The state GOP uh, sent out a press release calling for an investigation uh, not into the Liquor Commission, but actually into Andrew Valinsky, uh, the union leader, editorial board. This is the state's biggest paper, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, has attacked Valinsky uh, for nosing around on this. And then even Governor Chris Sununu, first term Republican, uh, has expressed his concern about Valinsky's behavior. Uh, It is worth noting that this isn't the first time the Liquor Commission has faced scrutiny. 
Uh, but curiously, last time it was from a, a top Republican. It was the then Speaker of the House, Bill O'Brien, who called for an investigation into the commission. Uh, at the time, he called it a rogue agency. This was in 2012. And O'Brien actually went so far as to create a special House committee uh, to look deeply into the Liquor Commission's uh, operations. And that committee cited two examples of these large all-cash bulk purchases made by out-of-state residents uh, in its final report. So this isn't exactly a new line of inquiry. I'm assuming that these large cash transactions that are being made by out-of-state buyers are because they're buying cheap cognac in New Hampshire, and then they're going to resell it in some other state. Is there any outreach to these other states? Has there been any criminal prosecutions uh, elsewhere about these very transactions that are at the center of controversy in New Hampshire? There have been. There have been some high-profile arrests, uh, cars stopped in Vermont where people now face fines for crossing state lines with above the sort of maximum amount of of liquor that you can transport. Uh, In New York, there was recently a high-profile arrest of uh, a man who lives, I believe, in Queens who's been accused of sort of reselling this booze. Uh, And we talked about the cases in Massachusetts. So what happens next with, with this story? So Valinsky has submitted what you know what he considers evidence uh, of the Liquor Commission not doing enough to police these large all-cash transactions. Uh, he's submitted uh, documents to the state attorney general's office. I, I should add, he hasn't accused any one person of doing something wrong or illegal. He's not calling for anyone to be fired. But he does think there's enough here to, to call in an outside auditor to look over these processes. Uh, The Liquor Commission, in a statement to NHPR, has said it has already had, quote, numerous reviews by attorneys and that everything here checks out. So the state attorney general's office so far has declined to comment on this. They simply say that they're reviewing the documents provided by Andrew Valinsky. This is something that has has come up over and over again as we cover our region, that many states have agencies that are tasked with both regulating an industry and also promoting an industry. So in this case, the state agency that's tasked with regulating liquor is also the agency that is going to be running these liquor stores. Are are people seriously thinking about whether or not this structure works long term in New Hampshire? I I don't know if there's going to be any sort of serious consideration of of doing away with the state-run liquor commission or how it's, uh, you know, managing both the retail outlets and enforcing, uh, you know, liquor laws at at New Hampshire bars and restaurants. Um, You know, it's no secret to anybody that the New Hampshire Liquor Commission focuses on selling booze to folks from out of state. Uh, These large transactions make money for the state at the end of the day. And so I think as long as no one turns up evidence of wrongdoing, that's going to stay in place. Todd Bookman is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. We're going to have links on our website uh, next to newengland.org to this reporting from NHPR. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Cheers. Cheers to you, John. Thank you. As New England's aging fleet of oil and nuclear plants retire, one way to make up for the lost energy is to build more generation, new solar panels or wind turbines. But before we add to the grid, there's a simpler way to lower emissions, improve the energy efficiency of our homes. As Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, a home energy audit can help with that. It seals up houses from wind and helps to lower heating bills. But as state budgets tighten, some of those programs are going away. Every morning, Mary Hollis follows a routine. 
Breakfast is oatmeal with granola, coffee, and maybe some yogurt or applesauce to help wash down her medication. During the winter, the retiree says she shivers through the meal. It's never warm when people come to my house, and it just bothers me. Hollis lives in a single-family home in Hartford. There's that draft by the door where she eats breakfast, and during the winter, chills seep around pipes and through the front foyer. If you go out that door right there, uh, if it were cold or the wind were blowing, you would think he was outside somewhere. You can't open it. You can't open it and let it stay open for no time. So a friend recommended Hollis get a free energy audit. We could add more insulation here. Today, Joelle Gonzalez from Home Comfort Practice walks through the house, knocking on walls and checking for air leaks. He's an efficiency contractor. <laughs> Leaky holes along the stairwell are plugged to block cold air. Old light bulbs are replaced with more efficient ones, and door sweeps are attached, blocking cold air. Gonzalez does some education, too. What is this red thing? That's what I was going to ask you. That's what the, is that's this for the for? gas. So, so if you ever want to turn off the gas, you just hit the switch. This is an emergency gas switch. That's, what, that's all it is. All New England states have some version of this home energy audit. Specialist comes to the house, there's an energy assessment, and the homeowner gets recommendations or rebates for stuff like new appliances or insulation. What's different state to state is how those services get paid for. In Connecticut, they're paid for by an efficiency charge on the electric bills of all customers. Natural gas customers pay a fee too. But oil customers don't. For a while, money from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative had been helping out those customers, but legislators took that money to plug up a budget hole. Grace Stewart, a community outreach coordinator for Home Comfort Practice, says that's made for a lot of confusing conversations. Um, so unfortunately, because of the budget cuts, we're no longer able to serve you. She has to tell people if you pay an electric bill but heat with oil, you're out of luck. And they're very upset. They're like, wait a minute, I'm paying into this program, I'm getting nothing out of it? That's not fair. Most of the low-income uh, families in the state tend to be on uh, oil or propane. John Latour manages weatherization services for Community Renewal Team. The agency says last year, 75% of its efficiency jobs were for homes heating with oil or propane. Because of the cuts, CRT says that number is expected to drop, which is raising all sorts of red flags. In Connecticut, oil is still the most popular home energy source, and it's widespread across New England, too. In Maine, nearly two-thirds of homes heat with oil, which is more than any other state in the nation. New England's building stock is uh, is older, and we're in a climate that does require quite a bit of heating. Jamie Holland works on efficiency projects for Acadia Center, a clean energy advocacy organization. He says New England states lead the nation when it comes to implementing energy efficiency, but that lately, states like Connecticut have regressed eliminating efficiency services to some of the region's most needy homes. We've, we've made good progress, but it's not like we're there yet. We need, to get, you know, we need to get that building stock in good shape, and so there's still a lot of work ahead of us, both in Connecticut and in the rest of the New England region. So out of 28 lights in the house, we replaced um, 14 of them. Back at Mary Hollis's kitchen table, Joelle Gonzalez goes over work done to the house. It's hundreds of dollars worth of labor and materials, all for free. And all because Hollis heats with gas, not with oil. So she's feeling lucky, and she's feeling warmer. When I used to sit here and eat my breakfast, the air would be coming under, you know, imagine, under no. my feet. Well, no, so. you, well, earlier you see the light down there, so we know airflow was coming <coughs> in from that. That's oh. completely stopped now, okay? And by stopping that airflow through her kitchen, Hollis is also stopping money from leaving her wallet. Customers like Hollis stand to save about 35% on their utility bills, an important savings in the state with the highest electric rates in the continental U.S.
That was Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reporting. In New England, many of our houses were built decades or centuries ago, and as we've heard, they are in need of energy efficiency fixes. But there's another movement we've been following here that uses new construction as a chance to create super energy efficient homes, so-called passive houses. The trend took off in Europe in the 1990s in response to high energy costs. John Kalish takes us to rural Maine, where he found the leading U.S. builder of these homes. How does it look on the bottom down there, Drew, at the outside? We begin this story on a bitter, cold weekday afternoon outside the town of Woodstock, New York. A five-man crew is assembling a prefab house on a wooded hillside. A crane lowers a wall section onto the concrete foundation as crew members guide it into place. It takes a week to assemble one of these passive homes. The panels were manufactured in Searsmont, Maine by a company called EcoCore. EcoCore works with architects around the Northeast. It's a different experience to live in a passive house. Architect Richard Pedranti is based in Milford, Pennsylvania. The big benefit to the homeowner is comfort and health. Very high indoor air quality. There aren't temperature swings cold spots and drafts, there's not condensation, moisture and mold. Padranti learned passive house construction at the Yestermorrow School in Vermont. He's currently working on three projects with EcoCore, which has built more single-family passive homes than anyone in the country. Padranti says it's no accident that New England is one of the hotbeds for passive house construction in the U.S. New Englanders They're a kind of pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps people, and I think that attitude certainly fits Passive House. As does Yankee thriftiness. EcoCore founder Chris Corson retrofitted his modest cape to Passive House standards and saw his heating bill go from more than $4,000 a year down to $400. The highly insulated and tightly sealed Passive Homes can reduce energy use by as much as 90%. Inside EcoCore's cavernous factory space in Searsmont, Maine, Corson tells me it takes about 30 days to build a prefab passive house. We literally build the house digitally on a computer. Our average house is probably 7,500 individual parts. We identify all of those parts and pieces and how they go together. We create a three-dimensional model that then goes to the CNC machine, which cuts all of those parts precisely. The CNC machine is a computer-controlled saw made in Sweden that cuts lumber and plywood with lightning-quick accuracy. High-tech production tables flip and rotate sections of wall, floor, and roof as workers go at them with power tools. The seams in every panel are sealed with a wide, sticky tape whose adhesive ability puts Gorilla Tape to shame. Wall panels are insulated with 12 inches of cellulose. Sealing and insulating the walls makes them super energy efficient, but more costly to build. I see a cost difference overall of probably 7 to 10 percent, depending on the scale and scope of the project. So is there an additional upfront capital expense? Yes, there is. 
However, you're investing in the components of the home that are the most resilient and last the longest. You're investing in a sealed foundation with high levels of insulation. You're investing in walls and roofs and high quality triple glaze windows, all of which will last a very long time. Some people are willing to pay the higher cost of building a passive house, knowing that the reduced energy costs will eventually allow them to recover the higher initial outlay. John Huber is a New York College professor who owns the recently erected passive house outside Woodstock, New York. We're proud to be doing it this way, but I think there's very few people who think about this as the first thing when they jump to building a new home. And I think what really has to happen is that the benefits of living in these houses have to become more apparent. EcoCore is manufacturing a new passive house at its factory in Maine every month. Founder Chris Corson says he hopes to build a new facility to increase production capacity. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish. Coming up, what New England communities ask from their local baseball teams and what the owners of those teams ask from taxpayers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Minor League Baseball is booming across America. It's family-friendly, it's relatively low-cost, and it brings the sport to small and mid-sized cities that don't have Major League Baseball. Pawtucket, Rhode Island has been home to Minor League Baseball since the early 1970s, and the city's had a special kind of relationship with its team ever since. It doesn't hurt that the team is affiliated with the Boston Red Sox, located just an hour up the highway. Red Sox legends like Jim Rice, Wade Boggs, and Roger Clemens all played for the team, lovingly known as the Paw Sox, at old McCoy Stadium. Now team officials say they need a new stadium, and it's launched a political battle over public funding for a private stadium. And it's brought back some bad feelings left from another baseball-related deal in Rhode Island's recent past. Ian Donis, who covers politics for Rhode Island Public Radio, is here to bring us the latest on this political fight over a cherished civic institution. Ian, welcome back to Next. It's good to be with you, John. Why don't you start by giving us a sense of what the Paw Sox and McCoy Stadium really mean to Pawtucket? It seems like a really uh, close relationship between this, this franchise and the city. Yeah, there are lot, lots and lots of Rhode Islanders who have cherished memories of going to McCoy Stadium. For many generations, it's been a place where Rhode Islanders could go for very affordable family entertainment. The stadium was built in the 1940s. It was called McCoy's Folly initially because it was built on a swamp, and some people questioned whether it would really fly. But a fellow named Ben Mondor, who made his money in paper mills, took it over in the 70s after it had become a Boston Red Sox AAA franchise. And Ben Mondor really emphasized the consumer experience, keeping low prices where a family could go to a ball game. It would be cheaper than going to a movie even. And for many generations, it was just a quintessential Rhode Island experience, uh, high caliber baseball at very affordable prices. But, but of course, if a stadium was built in the 1940s, it's probably pretty outdated by that point. I mean, is that why they're looking to move out of McCoy Stadium into a new stadium? Well, this whole 
process was set in motion when Ben Mondor, the longtime owner of the Paw Sox, died in 2010. His widow wound up selling the team to a new ownership group that included some former Boston Red Sox executives like Larry Lucchino, and they point to declining attendance figures and also growing deterioration at McCoy Stadium. There's not really much to do right around McCoy Stadium, and the current ownership group wants to build more of kind of a theme park atmosphere in and around the ballpark with more ancillary development. They say that is really necessary to boost attendance and to make the team more financially viable going into the future. So the state legislature is involved in building this new stadium, and that's really what you've been covering. Explain how state lawmakers are involved. Yeah, well, the Paw Sox Stadium proposal has been somewhat controversial in Rhode Island because it would require tens of millions of dollars of public borrowing. But the one chamber of the General Assembly, the Senate, has already passed the stadium financing proposal. The stadium is considered more congenial to labor interests. And of course, the labor movement is very anticipatory about the construction jobs that would come with building the stadium. But the House of Representatives has taken a much more skeptical approach. Well, let's actually hear from a a state senator. This is Donna Nesselbush from uh, Pawtucket uh, speaking in front of the Senate Finance Committee back in January. Uh, She's speaking in support of the committee's proposal, which was passed by the Senate. And she's talking here about the economic situation that Pawtucket is in right now. You know, we're struggling with the pending closure of Memorial Hospital. There has been talk of Hasbro, uh, a global uh, manufacturer of toys, perhaps leaving the city. Pawtucket needs an injection of economic development. So do you think that a, a baseball stadium, Ian, in the city would provide the kind of economic injection that they're looking for? Well, it's hard to say with complete certainty, John, but I think there's a chance that it would. The plan is to have ancillary development around the stadium. The proposed ballpark site is maybe all of uh, a half mile or a mile from the current stadium, but it's right on the periphery of downtown, right near some waterfront river property and near a proposed train station. So it would have the potential to bring some fresh life to downtown Pawtucket. The counterexample, if the stadium is not built, uh, Pawtucket, although it's right outside Providence, it is kind of a working class city that needs more revenue. And uh, the city fathers in Pawtucket are really looking to this stadium proposal as a way to bring some fresh energy and vitality to Pawtucket. So so what's public opinion in in the state, Ian? Are, Are people in the city viewing this differently than people in the rest of the state? Well, I think people in Pawtucket tend to be more supportive of it. This has been a somewhat polarizing issue, and that's due to something we went through in Rhode Island a couple of years ago called 38 Studios. 38 Studios was a video game company founded by former Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling. The company was lured to Rhode Island in about 2010 with a $75 million state-backed loan guarantee, and within less than two years, the company went bankrupt 
bankrupt, leaving taxpayers on the hook for tens of millions of dollars. So understandably, that has made taxpayers very cautious and skeptical about public borrowing. But people are kind of split. I mean, there is a segment of the populace that feels like the Paw Sox ownership has a lot of wealthy people. And if they want to build a stadium, they should just pay for it themselves. They shouldn't rely on the taxpayers. But then there are others, including the Paw Sox ownership, who say that the Paw Sox are an attraction that bring a lot of revenue to the state. They're a cultural amenity. They're a source of entertainment for middle-class families. And it would be a net revenue loss, they argue, if the Paw Sox were to go to another state. Yeah, one of the opponents, Stephen Fry, is a, a lawyer, a prominent Republican in the state. Here he is talking about how the state plans to finance this project. We're going to do it by doing some bonds. You call them appropriation debt. What you're doing is you're putting a debt on the taxpayers without their approval to assist a private company to promote economic development. Sounds a lot like 38 Studios. It's so interesting, Ian, that 38 Studios years later is still hanging over the state. Is that really what Stephen Frias and other opponents are, are pointing to, that any time Rhode Island decides to get into a public-private partnership deal, the cloud of 38 Studios is going to be hanging over it? Or is that just an excuse they're using to, to not vote for a project that they just don't think is a good idea? Well, the 38 Studios episode is certainly influencing public opinion, and there's never been a full probe or, or the full story has never been told of what happened with 38 Studios. There was a law enforcement investigation that did not produce any criminal charges. But at the same time, people like Stephen Fry's uh, point to a variety of concerns. The proponents of the stadium say the deal will pay for itself in terms of higher tax revenue, increased commercial growth. The opponents are skeptical about that. So it's a combination of 38 Studios, the uh, issue of whether this is corporate welfare and some of the questions about the financing of the ballpark proposal. And, of course, the last thing that always tends to happen around any sports team and their desire to build a new stadium, whether major or minor league, is that some other city always gets into the mix. And there's this other specter hanging over Rhode Island, Ian, that Worcester, Massachusetts might swoop in and grab the Paw Sox for themselves. How's that playing in Rhode Island? The thing that makes this very interesting is that it's very difficult to tell where this issue is headed. And it's been that case for many months. And, you know, a representative of Paw Sox ownership said back late in 2017, we expect this issue to be resolved early in 2018. It has not been resolved as of yet with the House not having taken up the legislation and the outlook remains as clouded as ever. Certainly Worcester would love to attract the Paw Sox, but Massachusetts does not really have a track record of offering public subsidies for sports stadiums where the New England Patriots play in Foxborough. The state of Massachusetts contributed some money for infrastructure improvements, but not for the stadium itself. And uh, we hear kind of whispers about the interest of Worcester, but there's not been any publicity about an explicit financial offer. Uh, I think the Paw Sox would really like to stay in Pawtucket because it is a larger market. It is potentially a more lucrative market for the Paw Sox. 
They have an established fan base here where they traditionally have drawn many people from Massachusetts as well as Rhode Island and perhaps from Connecticut as well. So we're waiting to see, and it's hard to tell if we're in the uh, sixth inning, the seventh inning, the eighth inning, or the ninth inning. And of course, this is an election year in Rhode Island, which only makes it uh, a more sensitive issue for those in elective office. But we will stay focused on this story. Ian Donis covers politics and sometimes baseball for Rhode (laughs) Island Public Radio. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. The city of Hartford, Connecticut, already built a brand new ballpark to lure a minor league team from nearby New Britain, Connecticut. Much like in Pawtucket, the plan was to build residential and retail developments around the park to help jumpstart the surrounding North End neighborhood, which currently has a lot of vacant lots and boarded-up buildings. But those developments haven't exactly developed yet. Hartford residents are thinking about what should come next and what the area needs, what could be lost as well. New England Public Radio's Heather Brandon reports. Jada Henderson lives in Hartford's South End, but comes near the baseball stadium to shop at a beauty supply store. It's one of the few businesses in the area recently renamed Downtown North which is missing a lot of other neighborhood basics. Clothing places, more food places around here. Like, there's not really nothing to eat around here that much. Somewhere you can sit down and stuff. Developers had until March 1st to submit plans for what they want to build on a number of pieces of land in the area. The city wants to see a mix of retail and housing in line with an original vision that so far hasn't panned out. For Henderson, the stadium itself is not all bad, especially since it used to be a parking lot. I think that was a good thing to have over here. I think that was something to make the environment look more nicer. But you have to pay to go to the stadium, and the baseball season lasts less than half the year. Henderson says she sees a lot of kids out on the street in this neighborhood and wonders if there's enough for them. I think it should be like more activities or something so they can get out of the streets more, like something that is fun for them. Where do you kids go play at? Because the drug dealers done took here, took all the streets and the hoods. Candy Easterling has seen this North End neighborhood change through the years. She says the drug dealing is much more out in the open now. Where's the safe except for um, the Y? You got to pay for that. That ain't free. She says the new development could help with that and provide job opportunities, especially for young people. There shouldn't be no reason for people to be hungry here and homeless. This is hard for the capital. Down the street is a thrift store in the San Juan Center, directly across from the ballpark. The door and its barred windows are painted bright blue. Deborah Stevens is inside helping out, visiting from Philadelphia. She says the new development offers a chance to help not just young people, but also seniors. Maybe some sort of exercise programming, or maybe even um, some businesses that um, cater to low-income folks, because that's what this area is. So you have to go to the mall here to really shop. You know, if you don't have a car, you know, you have to ride like maybe two buses. Behind the thrift shop, sitting in his office, is Fernando Betancourt. He runs the San Juan Center, a social service agency. He says it's almost neglectful that for more than 30 years, this formerly thriving area has been reduced to so many vacant lots. You can see miles and miles where you don't have a potential uh, cleaners or you don't have a, a food, or, or you, you don't have grocery store. The need is huge. And a little bit of new development, he says, will be a magnet for more business. 
On his corner of Main Street, Betancourt says he has a plan for more retail space on his first floor, and he wants to build apartments upstairs. So there is a potential here to have a combination affordable housing, but also market rate, because we don't want to concentrate poverty or low income in any particular area. It's the opposite. We want to mix it up. By mixing it up, he says, the neighborhood can attract more people who have money to spend. That might be part of any economic development plan, but it's also the thing that worries current residents and business owners. Marquan Lee thinks the city of Hartford is not paying enough attention to what the neighborhood says it needs. Just because it's a positive fit to... I want to say, like, the big guns doesn't mean it's a positive fit for the neighborhood. Just because it's beneficial to the city, it might not be beneficial to the community around it. And despite all its needs, Lee says the neighborhood is strong, with what he described as a lot of love inside the community. He just doesn't think people see that side of it. That was Heather Brandon reporting. Meanwhile, the Red Sox, New England's only major league team, is reckoning with its past, kind of, Earlier this year on Next, I spoke with Boston Globe columnist Adrian Walker about his column on prejudice in Boston sports. It was part of a series that looked at the city's reputation as an unfriendly place for African-Americans. Walker said the Red Sox set the tone when they became the last team to bring on a black player, Pumpsy Green, way back in 1959. Which is, by the way, three years after Jackie Robinson had retired. He came and went before there was a black player on the Boston Red Sox. And as Walker explained, that decision still has a visible legacy. It's because the street Fenway Park sits on is named after Tom Yawkey, the team owner who resisted integration back in the 1950s. It's Yawkey Way, and I want it renamed because Yawkey was the last owner to uh, hire a black player. Especially because it's Fenway Park, it's such an iconic uh, piece of Boston. I think that's a change that would really send a message in Boston and beyond. Last week, the Red Sox submitted a petition to the city to change the street's name back to its original name, Jersey Street, to send that message of inclusion. But there's a much subtler tribute to Tom Yawkey that's staying at Fenway. On the white stripes separating the scores on the green monster are a few dots and dashes, Morse code spelling out the initials of Tom Yawkey and his wife, Jean. In an email to WBUR on Monday, Red Sox spokeswoman Zineb Curran said there are no plans to remove this Morse code. She wrote, the petition to rename Yawkey Way is an effort to continue the work toward inclusion at Fenway Park. She wrote, the petition to rename Yawkey Way is an effort to continue to work toward inclusion at Fenway Park, not an effort to erase the Yawkey legacy from the ballpark entirely. Coming up, college students protest hate crimes on campus. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. It seems every few weeks there's a hate crime at a college in New England. There's been a marked increase in the number of racist slurs found scrawled on campus walls, and there's also been an increase in white supremacist group activity. As New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, protests are also on the rise as students demand their schools and classmates pay more attention to why hate has come to campus. Black Lives Matter! 
At the end of February, hundreds of University of Vermont students occupied a main campus building, demanding, not for the first time, the school do more to address issues of racial justice on campus. UVM was one of three colleges around Burlington last month that reported finding posters on campus defaced with white nationalist graffiti. One read, white, privileged, and proud of it. The Anti-Defamation League connects an increase in these kinds of incidents to the political climate, including President Donald Trump's comments and tweets on racial issues. Since September of 2016, we've documented 346 incidents of white supremacist propaganda. Robert Treston is the ADL's regional director for New England. That number is from the ADL's January 2018 report on the rise of white supremacy propaganda found on college campuses. And that's flyers, stickers, banners, or, or posters. You know, items that are actually trying to attract people and spread a, uh, a message of bigotry. The activities of white nationalist groups are highly visible, even more so when there's violence, like around the University of Virginia in Charlottesville last summer. Then there are the insidious, more frequent incidents of hate, like the nearly two dozen last semester at Westfield State University in western Massachusetts. Racism! Sexism. School president Ramon Torasia condemned the racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic symbols that defaced campus walls and elevators. Prejudices in our campus. And the racist notes written on or slipped under dorm doors felt personal to Jasmine Harper, a senior at Westfield who lived in the dorms last fall. The one female who was targeted was targeted multiple times for the residence halls to be, you know, attacked. How are we supposed to feel safe? Harper, who is African-American and Hispanic, is not alone asking this. Freshman Sarah Jabber is Palestinian-American and wears a hijab. She withdrew from a night class last fall. I mean, after everything happened, I really didn't want to be on campus that night, so I started skipping. The people who were targeted weren't Muslim, but, like, I still feel like... It could be Muslims next. Westfield State art history professor Emma Imer says many students came to speak with him last semester, including a criminal justice major who's white. And so she, in wanting to do something, told me how she went to one of the rallies that happened on campus. And it was a student-led rally, but she was frightened because she got there with her white friends and the black students that were on the stage. She felt they were saying things that were very anti-white. And she felt like she was being blamed. And she's like, well, I'm new to this conversation. Last semester was very challenging. Christina Swedan. Dean of Students at Westfield State, says the school is responding to what's happened. And some solutions are quick and concrete, like putting up 400 security cameras in dorms and on other buildings over the winter break. But solutions that involve people talking to each other, those will take longer. As a person of color who's been here for going on 14 years, I think that not everyone is comfortable in an environment that is very diverse. And by everyone, she means everyone on campus, students and faculty and staff. Swedan insists there's not a white supremacist movement at Westfield, but there is a problem. And the school has hired diversity consultant William Lewis, who's worked at corporations and colleges, including others in New England. Right off the bat, he says the people committing these bigoted acts are outliers. So what we have to do as college campuses, we have to create a space to where they feel uncomfortable, to where we're not complicit by being silent. Not only do we say, but we demonstrate through our actions how we're going to treat people on this campus. And if you can't get on board, this may not be the campus for you. Swedan says the work at Westfield is already underway. In the classrooms, we're working with faculty around how to have culturally sensitive conversations with your students. 
We have a program called Diversity Across the Curriculum where a faculty... Imagine that required Psych 101 course. Professors might use photos or YouTube videos to talk about how humans make decisions. If teachers are not already doing so, they'll have to make the effort to find media with not only white people on the screen, but people who look like students in their classrooms. It's a first step, and it seems very far away from that racist slur written on a dorm room door. But the research on combating bias and hate crimes indicates it's not. Though this all takes time. Last month at Westfield State, two more posters were found defaced with racist graffiti. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. In New Hampshire, the state's Department of Fish and Game is encouraging more women to get into outdoor sports. For more than 20 years, it's offered the Becoming an Outdoors Woman program, or BOW. The program helps the department make money and cut down on preventable rescues. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek attended a class and found out it's also about women helping women learn to fend for themselves. Uh, We're going to show you a couple things. About 20 women decked out in hiking gear are sitting in a classroom as two state search and rescue officers tell them, step by step, how not to die if they get lost in the woods in the winter. Uh, It's very, very important to keep yourself warm and dry. Always remember that, warm and dry, warm and dry. And if you don't have something... Lieutenant Heidi Murphy is Fish and Game's first and only full-time female conservation officer. She's leading this bow class at the State Hunter Education Center with fellow Lieutenant Brad Morse. So just so you know, um, we rescue very, very few women that make bad decisions. <laughs> Typically if we're rescuing a woman, it's because she get hurt. But we rescue lots and lots of guys that make bad decisions <laughs> because they, they have to go to the hilltop, they don't care about the weather, and they just keep on going. That is true. So just know that it's not, you're not a loser if you didn't make it to the top. Accomplishing your goal is just being able to do it in general. Bo is full of these life lessons about planning and improvisation, grace under pressure, and self-reliance. That's no small thing for many of the women in the class, like Claire Rouge. The very essence of the topic is that we're surviving. I mean, the other things are for my enjoyment, but this could really get me out of a jam. And her daughter, Vivi Rouge. I just think it's so cool. Like, I love the idea of, like, being in the woods and, like, making a fire and, like, (laughs) sleeping in the trees. Now they head into the snowy woods for fire lessons. So we all carry something called a ferro rod, okay? Lieutenant Morse pulls out a small steel rod. And what this is, this is just, it's a, a special kind of steel that's got magnesium impregnated into the steel, and it burns at like 3,000 degrees. Oh. And Strike the ferro rod to make sparks and light a fire. It's not the only special tool in Morse's pack, which he says is for a one-day winter hike. He's got waterproof matches, a first aid kit, a stove, pounds of clothes and blankets. This is not survival for the unprepared. So you two are a group? You two are a group. Claire Rouge and Julia Wilcox tromp through feet of snow to pull sticks off dead trees for their fire. They're armed with lots of tools, including a backpack-sized folding saw to cut logs. Oh, that's really cutting through. They dig out a space in the snow for their logs, then bring out one more secret weapon, a cotton ball covered in Vaseline. Split it open and you've got a waterproof fire starter to light with matches or sparks. Oh my gosh, it's working! The cotton ball flames up. 
Morse shows Rouge and Wilcox how to stack their piles of sticks on top. This is so empowering. <laughs> Excellent. Oh my gosh. It sounds good. Nearby, Vivi Rouge is proudly bundled up beside her fire, scheming about things to cook on it. I think it's like very freeing to know that like I could go anywhere and I can take care of myself. Bo really is about empowerment for women of all skill levels. Program coordinator Kim Pruel says the idea began as a research project in Wisconsin. It found competitive co-ed environments made it harder for women to get involved in the outdoors. It's an intimidation factor, too, sometimes, because it's like, okay, well, I don't want to be picked on or harassed because I can't do this right the first time. And you never know in a co-ed situation if there's going to be that kind of tension. So having just women and you're all there at ground level saying, nope, this is why we're here and we're going to learn and we're going to learn as a group, uh, it's easier to uh, to do something like that. All this team spirit comes in handy for the other skill on today's agenda, building snow shelters. The women have learned to make simple lean-tos from tarps. Now they're onto something more labor-intensive, a big snow fort you'd make if you knew you were going to be stuck for a while. Susan Rosley and Karen Van Houten have spent 20 minutes using folding shovels to dig a pile of snow for their fort, and they've got a long ways to go. They say they'd probably call home to be rescued before they got this far. Call my husband. I think it's time to come get me. Really. I'm done hiking, honey. Bottle of wine I left there too. <laughs> they keep at it, and soon their snowpile is igloo sized. Karen Van Houten and Stacy Sibula say this kind of group makes it easy to practice the heavy lifting that men often volunteer for. I don't think I rely on myself as much as men around, unfortunately. Even though I could do it, I'd rely more on my husband. I would agree with that. I think I'm more willing to take charge in a group of women. I think yeah. I, I mean, I. I still, I think, would pitch in with their men, but I think men tend to do- dominate a situation, and so I'd probably step back. Yeah. Now, next time they're in the woods, they think they can take charge, no matter who they're with. That was NHPR's Annie Ropeek reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, consider giving us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find out about Next, so thanks. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. <laughs>